Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Well, what's up? This is Dan, the fitness man with Oak Shape Podcast. This is number 40. This is an old episode. I don't know why it never got published, and I saw it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, we talked about some pretty legit things from family, balancing hunting, fitness, all that kind of stuff that's pretty motivating. If you're down in the slums or feeling sorry for yourself, this is a good podcast to wake back up and start thinking about 2019. You know, tomorrow I'm recording with a good friend who's a great public land elk killer. He's killed some giants on public land, and I'm picking him up from the airport and driving him down to Lewiston or something so he can go do a hunt with his father-in-law. And so we're going to record on the road trip down and then I'm backed up the next day. I got uh, an archery tech do-it-yourself public land guy. And so he's going to, we're going to get into some technical archery with him and things that you can do to keep your bow dialed and some best practices on shooting technique and listen to some of his stories. You know, he's a good dude. And then the very next day, I have another guy who is uh, one of my favorite personalities and he's so authentic and he doesn't give a crap what you think about him he's going to be who he is so we're going to be pumping out some podcasts here like we're doubling down a little bit so i figured i'd get this one out in the meantime just so you guys know elk shape is on top of our game 40 episodes deep in 2018 and i'm pretty pleased with that if you are a listener and you're loyal or if you're a newbie here's what we talk about on elk shape it's not just about getting in shape for hunting i mean that's part of it but fitness is definitely your ally we're going to talk about ways to stay disciplined in your fitness your finances and your family this podcast is for those blue collar folk those sistering and brethren that breathe elk hunting and think about it 365 and want to use it as a launch pad to make their life better and to work hard in the name of better elk hunting, stay disciplined, focused, and delayed gratification is really what everything revolves around. A lot of you noob hunters are stuck in that learning curve. We're going to get you out of it by giving and delivering tactics, tips, strategies, and a mindset of success. 
and uh, success for everyone's a little different, but for me, success is a full freezer for sure on public land. I'm not going to hire a guide. I don't need an outfitter. I don't want a landowner tag, and I don't want to hunt your private ranch. I want to hunt public land, BLM National Forest, whatever, in wild places where anyone can get an elk tag over the counter at their local dealer and just get after it. And I think that's the most rewarding style of elk hunting. So that's what we're about. And I think that Elk Shape brand is going to continue to grow because it's something that is authentic. It's something that people can actually relate to. It's obtainable. This is the Real Deal podcast. There's no fancy intro music. It's just straight to the point. Let's get right after it. Let's work hard and let's keep our priorities straight and let's have more success in the field. Today, I'm going to be interviewed by Mark from XO Mountain Gear, and we did this in the, the late spring, and I don't know how it didn't get published. They might have published it, but I don't think it came through, so there's some good information on this one. I think it's going to leave you a little bit more motivated and a little bit more dialed on your prioritization of fitness and your wellness and your shooting and all the things that go into being a successful public land blue-collar, over-the-counter elk hunter enjoy dan welcome to the hunt backcountry podcast how you doing i'm doing great thanks for having me on yeah man having you on again we had you man it was back episode 20 i had to look it up before we hopped on here it was almost two years ago it's crazy oh wow yeah it doesn't seem that that long ago i know it's one of those deals where you're looking like how was that actually two years ago so this is long overdue man to get you back we're excited did we we talked about nutrition on that one we did yep we kind of hit it I think it was like no BS nutrition advice. It was good stuff. We got good feedback, but uh, that's not where we're going to go today. Now that that's not bad, but listeners, if you want to catch some nutrition talk, definitely go back to the archives, hit up episode 20, and uh, maybe learn more about Dan if you're not familiar already. Yeah, there you go. Sweet. So I guess uh, for listeners who maybe aren't aware, just give us like the, the quick synopsis of who the heck Dan is if they haven't caught the other episodes. Okay. Um that's always funny. Uh, <laughs> I am married to um, a very ambitious, hardworking wife named Alicia. We have two beautiful children. So family first and then uh, probably a small business owner. I own CrossFit Spokane Valley and it's a, it's a gym. It's an affiliate of one of 14,000 in the world. We're in Spokane Valley, Washington, and I'm on year number 10 with that. Uh, Let's see. I own Elk Shape, and that is basically just kind of a lifestyle fitness brand that does podcasts, YouTube, social media, blogging off the website, but really just trying to invigorate people to train year-round for elk season and not squander a second in the mountains. Um, and I'm just kind of a blue collar guy as far as when it comes to elk hunting. I really have, oh, public ground elk hunting is near and dear to my heart. And I have a lot of respect for those that go buy their tags at Walmart and hunt national forest with everybody else and cut their teeth on public land elk hunting. It's one of the most rewarding and challenging ways to get it done. And I make... Um, no claims that private land or landowner tag hunting is not as good. It's just not my way or, and so I don't talk much about that. 
I just uh, have a passion for being in the mountains with family and friends and just my life revolves around trying to get out and produce the best elk hunting season I can with the time that I'm given. So it's it's a gift and I want people to never forget that. Yeah, that's awesome. Dude, there's so much in there and just the kind of the personal conversations we had and something we wanted to talk a bit about the show uh, tonight was just this whole dynamic of balancing family and hunting. And really with what you have going on, it's more than just those two. You have family, which you said family first, and then you have your hunting, which you love and you get to do quite a bit of. As you mentioned, small business owner on the CrossFit side and then also doing a ton of content in the hunting space in terms of you know, videos, podcast writing. I mean, that's a, that's a lot to juggle. Um, and I've been in similar places in my own life as well. You know, we're both married, both have young kids, both trying to do awesome stuff. So I I mean, I just want to kind of talk about some of these issues, um, you know, sticking mostly to family and hunting, but how does, how does this play out for you? What are some of the things already that you're kind of learning? Cause your kids are pretty young how what have you been seeing this change from Dan not married, Dan not a dad, Dan just hunting to then working this hunting lifestyle in while keeping family a priority? Yeah, it's a definitely a evolution. So Dan not married did whatever he wanted when he wanted and he would quit jobs to go elk hunting if that's what needed to happen. And um that was a good run. I didn't get married till I was 27. So I started elk hunting when I was 20. So I had seven seasons of just a lot of days in the field, which is what it took to really embrace the elk hunting learning curve, which I talk about frequently. Um, very few people experience success as far as getting an elk down early on, especially if you are coming from like where you live, Midwest or out east, and it's you don't have the opportunity to put boots on the ground and you know you just load up the pickup and drive 20 plus hours and show up and try to do your best in 10 days yeah so i really um sucked at elk hunting and got some great mentorship and um went from a guy who could never kill an elk to a guy who can get an elk for sure almost can't, can't say 100%, but for sure can get an elk every year, but just uh, a guy who's learned his lessons and can put himself in positions to be successful every year. Then when I got married, um, I didn't get a chance to put my wife through two elk seasons, which I always told myself I would. I still think that's good <laughs> advice. So before you get married, put her through two seasons? Two seasons, because the first one like might the just test. be like, oh, cool, yeah, hunting's awesome. They can suck it up once. And then the second year around, they could be like, you're not doing that again because now they know kind of what's going to come. <laughs> right. um, I would Dude, highly suggest that. So two elk seasons yeah, that's pretty before legit. you get married is my, my advice. It's, <laughs> it's kind of a little bit unsolicited. But the other thing was uh, I didn't do that. Um, but the hunting season I did put her through was probably like the most I've ever hunted in a year. I mean, I think I went to Alaska. I went to New Mexico. I went to Wyoming. I went to Montana. I missed Thanksgiving. I mean, I was never home. I hunted a ton, and so I felt like that was a pretty good idea, you know, you know, pretty good season to put her through, and we got married, and we didn't have kids for, oh gosh, f- at least five years, so a lot of uh, 
a lot of our spare time was spent backpacking together, of course, into places I wanted to hunt or scout, and uh, very enjoyable. Could go on dates whenever we wanted, and you know, she always kept busy when I went hunting, so it was cool. But when we had her first kid, uh, Avery, my daughter, still kind of no problem, but when two years later we had our son, it was just like two changed everything. So, uh, you know, nowadays we're talking about getting away is so difficult and there is a level of guilt because I know how much work it is to just watch two kids and she works and, you know, run the business and things like that. So, yeah, man, it is difficult with two and I couldn't imagine more than that. I'm already overwhelmed with just two. And people might roll their eyes at that, but I'm just being honest for where I'm at. Uh, two is very difficult just because they're, you know, they're young and they need a lot of attention. They're, they don't go to school. Um, they're just at that age where, you know, they're busy. And so we'll see how this year goes. Last year, I got out for probably, gosh, at least 20 days of elk hunting, which is really good and probably oh, a week of bear hunting and almost a week of whitetail hunting. So I can't complain. It's probably about five weeks of hunting. I am self-employed. I preach that if you want to hunt a lot, you probably should be self-employed um, or you know have a job where you can get the time off necessary because I think it takes time to be successful, especially with archery on public land. But that's where I'm at nowadays, Mark, is just you know balancing. We'll see how this season goes. I'm thinking about trying to find a nanny to help my wife out while I'm gone a little bit. And I'm, I've talked about this on my podcast. I'm trying to like budget in that and work the finances so we can afford a nanny so I can go elk hunting. That's how selfish I am about elk hunting. But <laughs> I just want to be able to create a scenario where there's no um, animosity or just, you know, where your wife might just be upset because you were gone so long and left her with so much responsibility. And then being a small business owner, you have to be super organized and dialed. You need to have your hunting dates on the calendar, I think six months out, get your employees on board. I have a manager, so get her on board with my schedule, budget in an extra bonus for her for taking care of the place while I'm gone. And then on the elk shape side of things, I mean, I got to have videos already made, podcasts already bankrolled, and then all my deliverables to my partners. And so it's just a lot of work. And I haven't even, you know, talked about the fun stuff, which is like, you know, the scouting, the shooting, the training, all that other stuff is in there as well. So, man, it's a balancing act that I'm still trying to figure out. Yeah. Yeah, man, I'm right there with you. I've, kids are six and nine, and, you know, I'm going away. Uh, every year on at least one decently long hunt this year it'll be a couple hunts uh good for me maybe bad for them but yeah it is it's a balancing act and as you said you don't have it figured out what are some of the things you're doing maybe in the off season i don't want to phrase it as like you know to kind of earn that time to go away hunting because that it makes it sound like it, it it is purely selfish and i know you well enough to know that's not exactly what it is like you talk about being selfish with your elk hunting and i get it but at the same time you also want to be there right like you want to be a good dad you want to be a good husband but what are those things you're making sure to do through the off season you know to make sure that you're present and engaged and all that when you are home yeah that's well one thing i learned about my wife 
when I had her on my podcast was, you know, I asked her some hard questions, but the truth of the matter is, is if I don't go elk hunting, I'm not the same person. It's part of who I am. It's part of the package she married. And without elk hunting, without that time in the mountains, with the creator in the mountains, without the cell phone turned on, I'm not the same person. And I'm not, I'm not fit to be around anybody, I don't think. And I don't get my batteries recharged or rejuvenated. And so everything else will take a hit. So I think having a partner that understands that it is a necessity and is part of who that person is, is important. As far as, you know, good advice that I'm trying to employ would be filling up that cup of your family as much as you can leading up to the hunting season. And I think a lot of guys know that hunting season truly never ends. There's always something to be done when it comes to currently application season and research online or cyber scouting studying forums and YouTube videos and Onyx hunt, gohunt.com, all those things are pulled up on your laptop. And then you have shed hunting season, which I haven't even got a chance to participate in yet. And that's, that's a huge change for me. I just have had to, to not go, but that's okay. And then, you know, spring bear hunting, that's something that's huge for me every year. And I might even turkey hunt this year, although I think I'm kind of retired from turkeys, but getting out there and bear hunting. And then there's always trail cam season, which can be as long as you want, scouting season. And then there's hunting season, which seems to last from August almost till the December for me. So there's not a lot of time in there for family. So you're going to have to say no to certain things or bring the family along. And so for me, that's going to be a lot of... um, Getting things on the calendar, getting some camping trips planned, uh, getting the camper ready, and doing what Mrs. wants. You know, maybe going somewhere that's there's no hunting nearby, so you're just literally present in the moment, going camping, taking the kids outdoors, getting some time on the lake or the river, and just just know that your time will come. And I think for having kids, it's just for me, I have to spend less time scouting than usual. And uh, kind of just really get after it when I am in the mountains. So being ready for that is really important. Yeah. You know, it's good you mentioned spending the time and money on what they want to. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's so key because, uh, man, as we all know, as you said, there's kind of no off season. Hunting takes a lot of time. It takes money. And we have to make sure that we're spending time and money on them too and investing in that for sure. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a balance. It's a balance for sure. We actually had a um, Josh from Dialed In Hunter. He wrote a guest blog for the Exosite, kind of on balancing family and husband. And he had this quote in there that I was just reminded of as I was thinking about this conversation, this episode. And he said, as a hunter, I am selfish, but as a husband, I need to be selfless. And he was in the context of saying, you know, there's certain times where we just have to do things maybe that we don't want to do personally but we need to want to do them for our wife or for our kids. Um, and that's so true. Do you think that like in hunting is inherently selfish and in what ways isn't it? It's like you said earlier, you are just a different person when you get to go hunting 
and you're not a good person if you don't. And it's just part of who you are. And I agree. I totally know what you're saying there. And so there's like, yes, it's selfish, but at the same time, it's good for those around you when you get that time. So how do you look at that whole balance of it being selfish? Yeah, I do think it is selfish. I mean, I think I could go on without hunting. I do. I could go on. Would I be, would I have as much joy uh, and, or excitement or motivation or inspiration? Um, no, I think it would really affect my day-to-day living. You know, there is a reason why my bow is above my bed. So when I wake up before coffee, I grab my bow, walk out on my deck and shoot a group or two. That's not because I, it's a Zen moment or what. It's because I need reps on my bow. Uh, it's taken me quite a few years to understand that. And when I finally learned that, it's just a way of life. I need to shoot. And if I didn't have hunting, I probably wouldn't need to shoot. Um, and then the training. Why do I put so much energy and effort into training? Training makes me mentally well, physically well. It gives me confidence, not only in myself, but what my abilities are because I test myself when I'm training. If I don't have anything to train for, would I be as motivated to train? Probably not. And I, the, the whole little voice that can whisper in your ear and say, oh, that's good enough would be a lot louder, if that makes sense. And so, um, and then the time in the mountains, you know, I just don't, it's just hard to duplicate when you don't have cell service and you're in God's country. And I just think that everyone who's ever been an amazing, prolific, articulate writer, they all seem to write about nature and how it, it brings man peace and tranquility and calm and it's good for your stress levels and we live in the most stressful world probably ever at any point in time this is probably the most stressful world we live in because of technology notifications you know socials and emails and phone calls and everything's at your fingertips so i do not think it is healthy to not be out in the mountains or in a wilderness or somewhere where you can get free of that and get your mind right. So um, everybody, I think, at some point desires to be still. And I find it very difficult to be still in the city where there is Wi-Fi and a cell phone connection, if you know what I mean. So without hunting, a lot of those things would, would really have no meaning or purpose. And so as selfish as it may come across initially, I do believe archery hunting has made me who I am in a lot of ways from the things I just described. And I hope listeners can at least appreciate where I'm coming from. Yeah. Yeah, It's like the example of, you know, you get on a flight and they talk about the, the mask drops and you have to put it on yourself first before you can help someone around you. Because if, if you're taken out, you're no good to anybody else. And so to an extent, like, you have to have that time. You have to have that stillness. You have to have that quiet. You have to have that escape. You have to get away from the stresses of running the business and changing diapers and doing all of that. You have to have that to take care of yourself so that you can take care of your family better. Um, that's not a obviously a green light to go do it 
all the time and any time and never be around your family. But I think if you're in that balance, like if you're in that struggle that I know you and I are both in of trying to get to that and trying to be an awesome father, an awesome husband, just an awesome man in general, then yeah, take that balance. But you have to somewhat take care of yourself to take care of others. That's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So another thing that I've heard you talk about and just kind of wanted to touch on, and it, it ties into all this, is just the discipline. The discipline aspect and then delayed gratification. I think anybody that's into fitness a little bit understands this at least to an extent because discipline is required to be fit, to get fit. Um, discipline in fitness is delayed gratification. You're kind of suffering in the current moment so that you can reap a reward at a later time. But I know that for you, it plays out in much more than just fitness. So what are some of the ways that you've reaped the benefits of discipline and delayed gratification over the past few years? Yes. Well, I think the way that I elk hunt, and I do elk hunt mostly solo, um, fitness is my best ally. And let me expand on that because I don't think I'm the best elk hunter and I don't think I'm even close to the best archer, but I do feel like my fitness is up there and for what I need to do in the mountains, whether it means, you know, adapting to a lot of hunting pressure. So I got to go deeper and bivouac hunt or hunt out of my backpack let's do it and if it means going after an elk that if i kill that elk i'm looking at several days of getting out by myself don't even think twice go uh if the sun's setting and i only have 20 minutes of daylight left and that bull's in the bottom there's no time to think about what if or uh I don't want to hike way out in the dark. I won't get back till midnight. Whatever. Let's go. And I can push sleep off. And I can recover fast between hunts. That's all really been what I got going for me. And so with that, that is where I reap what I sow. And so throughout the year, I want to break a sweat every day in the name of better elk hunting and keeping fitness an ally um, so I can be successful. And, you know, I've had many hunts where there was a tag still left in my pocket and I've had a great time and a great experience. But over the last 10 years, we eat elk. That's what we eat. That's our main staple for meat. And so I will kill an elk every year if I'm not injured and I have good health, I'm going to go kill an elk for the freezer, which is really good for someone to say that, in my opinion, as far as I'm out there to get meat. Um, and that's, you know, the inches on the antlers is just a bonus. And yes, I do want to kill a really big bull, and there's no doubt about it, but I want to kill an elk first and foremost. And so fitness has been a huge ally. But beyond that, discipline is the bedrock for mental toughness, in my opinion, because there are many days, if not more days, where I do not want to train. And people might be like, well, you're pretty motivated. Yeah, I'm very motivated, but there's days where I don't want to train. I don't feel like doing it. I can think of 300 other things that 
should be done before I work out. And so it takes a lot of discipline to stop what you're doing and go do the hard thing, which is training, and do the hard movements and uh, the sucky workouts where you're tempted to quit, no one's looking, shave a round off, cut out a few reps, or, you know, no. Put your head down and finish the workout in the name of mental toughness. And every time you don't quit, you're making yourself mentally stronger. And uh, everyone says that in the backcountry, they'd rather be mentally strong than fit. And I say I'd, re- I'd like to be both. If I'm extremely fit and extremely mentally tough, uh, there's really nothing I can't overcome. And adversity is inevitable when you're hunting elk, especially archery. You're going to, it's like baseball, you're going to, your batting average is not going to be a thousand percent. No one's is. And so I need opportunity. I need bulls in front of me. I'm going to have to work for it. And there's going to be bad weather and there's going to be hunting pressure. I could make a bad shot and lose an elk. I could have wolves. I could have equipment failures. Anything could go wrong. And so Murphy's Law is a real thing. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. So if you can't handle 10 days in the backcountry without, you know, thinking about a, a cheeseburger and milkshake or missing your family and talk yourself for leaving, yeah, I don't know how you're going to be successful. And that's what it takes. That's really what it takes to be a great, I think, great at anything is to, in between the ears. And when you can have fitness portfolio dialed and your mental toughness game on point, that's a deadly combination. Yeah. And by training, you build both at the same time. And that's what's so awesome about it. Yeah. Man, I was there today. (laughs) I was there today. Just mentioned it. I did like a lunch break workout and kind of had 40 minutes on the clock. And I was like, all right, I'm going to hit this. And then I got to a certain point where there's, you know, eight minutes left. And I'm thinking I should just stop like I did enough. But it's in every one of those moments where, like you said, like you get to make that choice at that point. Do you quit? Do you give up? Or do you just get stronger? Um, And I don't mean stronger by physically finishing the eight minutes, although that's probably true. I just mean stronger by going, yep, this sucks, so let's keep going. And as you said, like you are going to face that if you hunt the backcountry, if you hunt archery elk. That's going to happen probably more than a couple of times, you know, in Mm -hmm. each season or in each hunt. Yep. I I can't even tell you how many times I've been hunting – and even in the last few seasons where I'm like, I don't know how I've ever killed an elk because this is so thick and steep and brushy. The elk aren't talking. The weather's bad. There's wildfires, whatever. And I'm just like, man, I don't even. And then all five seconds later, you go from zero to hero, you know, and just staying out there, keeping your head down, grinding. That's the beauty of our, our uh, I don't know if I can call it a sport or our passion but hunting, you never know what's around the next corner. And just when you think there's no chance of ever punching your tag, 30 seconds later, you could be arrow out of your quiver and gone. And you're, you know what I mean? And you're on cloud nine. And I lo- that's what keeps me coming back every year. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, you get to do a fair amount of hunting each year and you even recommend to guys, it's like, if you want to be successful, you got to put the time in like to the point where you even said, 
maybe you should look at owning your own business and being able to create your own schedule and get more time in the field. If you think about your own experiences, what would you say that like on average is how many days does it take you to kill a bull each year? Okay. Yeah. So I can go off memory last year. I didn't go elk hunting until September 6th. That's when it opened up in North Idaho. I didn't have any killer tags either last year. So it was just an over the counter. And what did I do? I did something horribly wrong. I passed on probably four bulls the first day. All like raghorn bulls. I just had one of those days where I, any bull that answered, I could get him to come in. And so I passed and got back and my dad was at camp and he was just like, well, don't tell your wife because she's going to be pissed that you, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know why, but I just didn't, I wasn't, I don't know. It was a mistake. The very next day, September 7th, it was a very slow morning and I was actually hiking back to, to my dirt bike pretty deep and I just threw out one last locator, herd bull answers. And the reason why I said herd bull, just because where I hunt, you can never judge a bull by its bugle. And I agree with that. But where I hunt, that's not true. This was a herd bull, 100%. Just throaty, deep, awesome bugle. And he bugled, he answered every bugle that I sent out. And I was on top and he was in the bottom. And the wind was still coming up. So I hauled ass and I answered him every time. And next thing you know, 15 minutes later, 1500 feet later, we are just about on the same level. And uh, he's raking a tree and uh, he's pretty confident. He's in an alder field in a North Idaho alder field is filled with huckleberry brush and these other alders. I don't know what they are, but he can't really see me and I can't really see him to get a shot. I can just see his rack. He's a pretty good six point, probably just just right around three hundred inch bull, and um, I get a finally I get him to stop in a lane thirty yards, let the arrow go. Shot felt good. Gave him over an hour, and found my arrow passed through. Good blood, but no good blood on the trail. So after an hour waiting, after a black bat, I ran into a black bear waiting. Um, which was a good encounter with the black bear. I didn't shoot it, but it was just a bear eating on berries and huffing at me because he finally got my wind. Tracked this bull just off tracks, which is really hard to do when it's hot and dry. And I think that's important. All hunters should become really good trackers. More so on a blood trail is tracks. Tracks are really important. And this was a tough track to follow because he had about 11 or 12 cows and they all ran off together. And it is hard to kill a bull when he's got that many cows. And I did bump a few cows. They were pretty spread out. I did bump a few cows on the way to him. And I just always hit a couple soft, soft cow calls and kind of stopped them from sprinting off and getting the whole herd to leave. Anyways, got the arrow. There wasn't bubbles on it, but it was a, a little bit darker blood. It wasn't quite dark like liver blood. So I wasn't super stoked. Long story short is I ended up bumping him out of his bed. He was still with all his cows. Couldn't get another shot on him just because it was too thick. And I was probably inside of 30 yards with him for about 20 minutes. 
arrow knocked, trying to get another arrow in him and seeing him and pulling back several times and not getting another shot. And he was bugling and just acting like everything was good. So he ended up taking his cows finally, busting me and running to another zip code. I lost a bull September 7th. So that was two amazing days of elk hunting. And then I think it was the very next day that weather moved in. And we had weather for seven days in North Idaho last year where it was either really foggy, rainy, or snowing. And it just made, I still went out, but I could not get into elk worth a darn. And compound that with, I had at least three different wolf packs in my area. They made a couple kills and they just dispersed all the elk out of where they usually rut. And so I didn't kill a bull till September 20th. And I hunted, I started the 6th and I went back at least two days, one to work at the gym and one to work at the fire department. I was working at the fire department too. I don't work there anymore. So 12 days of hunting and I killed a bull on the 20th and it ended up being um, awesome experience. But so last year to answer your question, 12 days, um, the year prior, I think I killed two bulls a day apart, you can kill two bulls in Idaho if you buy a second tag. On the 22nd and the 23rd, and I didn't start till the 15th. So what's that? Seven, eight, nine days? Seven, eight, yeah. Yeah. So if you take the last two seasons, it took me 12 days, although I should have been done day one and day two. And the year prior, seven, eight days. But uh, each year is really different. I do, I will say I really like early season September. I think that's the best time to really call in a big bull. I think it gets pretty tricky once they get all their cows rounded up and their pecking orders get established. But um, I don't know. Every year is a little different, but um, I have killed quite a few bulls in the last 10 years because I've been buying two tags. So I've been averaging mm-hmm. two bulls a year. And so usually I get one down pretty fast, and then I kind of spend the rest of the season trying to get like a bigger bull or whatever. Um, and it just depends on, you know, the season I'm having, but I live for it, man. It is awesome. And like I said, um, there's really no bad time in September. I've just had really, really tough time getting elk though. Like the last five days of season. So like the 26th or the 30th has just been really tough. It seems like they're kind of worn down from the rut. They kind of know what's up. They've been called that where I hunt quite a bit. So I prefer the first half of the season, um, in Idaho, Every state's yeah. a little different. I've hunted almost all the states out west for elk, and um, everything's a little different. But I don't know. How about you? What was your season like? Yeah, I mean, I was just I was wondering about the time frame for you in general, somebody who gets a decent amount of time because that's a luxury yeah. that I haven't had, you know? So, yeah. you know, going on the past seasons, and thankful I'll have more time in the field this year. But, you know, thinking of last year is a good example where it's like, okay, I go out and I have seven days, just period, for the hunting uh, really closer to six when you figure pack in pack out stuff like that because then you know i'm talking about a 20 plus hour drive and it's still ending up being a 10 day trip um to get you know six seven days of solid hunting and then you know as you were saying like what happened with you in idaho and this the weather coming in i mean that's exactly what we hit where we were last year um i just think it's you know it's a 
good point to bring up for listeners, especially as you mentioned, like you're talking with blue collar guys all the time, just regular dudes. It's like the more time you can put in, the better your results are going to be. Because if you have a year like I did last year, where you have six, seven days and you just happen to be there where five of them absolutely suck, then, you know, what are you going to do? You know? Um, And the other thing that I would just say to that point is, even though we had a ton of crappy weather, just like crazy high winds and some storms blow in, um, even though it feels like there's kind of no point, like you just have to keep hunting. Because some of the encounters that we had last year were far from textbook, were far from what we would have expected, um, but you're not going to have them if you're back at camp, you know? Like you just have to be out there and getting in it. Absolutely. You will not kill an elk from camp. Yeah. And I love saying that because it goes back to that mental piece. If you've elk hunted anywhere that's hard and steep, which I believe almost applies everywhere, everybody is pretty amazing at elk hunting on day one. I would even say day two. And by the end of day three, you might start to feel the fatigue set in. And the morning of day four, your sleeping bag is so warm and cozy and your yeah. alarm's going off and you might have just gone to bed. It felt like you just laid your head down and your alarm's going off and you may be tempted to sleep in. And especially if you peek out the tent and it's raining sideways. I mean, I always go back to that little voice, that little weakness voice will whisper, stay in your sleeping bag a little longer, you know, wait, wait for the storm to ride out, but you will not kill an elk from that tent. Get your ass out of the tent and go put yourself in a position and you know what if you just get soaked and don't even hear a bugle it's still a win you still won the day you put your best foot forward and you have no regrets and there's a long off season for you to think about the what ifs so don't have any yeah that's a good point what are some of the key lessons you've learned you mentioned you know you got to put in a lot of time early um, it was a struggle to kill elk early. It was just a process. What are some of the things that you see as making the big difference between then and now? You know, besides time in the field, was it improving shooting? Was it improving calling? Was it understanding behavior? Like, what are some of those key takeaways that make you a better elk hunter now than you were then? Yeah, I mean, we could write a book on this topic, but um, and this is the same question I ask a lot of my guests that I bring on. Um, I would say learning your elk habitat right out the gates. You got to know where the elk live and you got to know if you're in a spot where the elk are. And if they're not talking, you got to be able to read sign. You know, you got to be able to determine if this rub was made in August or was this rub made in September? Uh, Was this wallow been hit? Where are they feeding? Where are they watering? Where are they sleeping during the day? Where's their north side? What's an elk probably going to do? you got to think like an elk. And it's hard to just know that without experience. And so that would be the first piece of advice. The second one would be to hunt the same areas year after year over the counter if that's what you have as options. It's Wanderlust is cool, but and I have it. I love the idea of hunting new places. I'm going to a new place this year, Wyoming. I've never been, and I'm excited about it. But the chances of me and being successful in North Idaho are high because I know right where to go. And if they're not there, I know right where to go. And I'm going to get into them. 
So learning your areas year after year, investing yourself in a certain spot, that's important. And then wind. You know, you can't fool an elk's nose, not even close. You have to take the hard route. A lot of times that means going off that side of the mountain to the other side, looping way around and risking, you know, that bull was so close to you. It's so tempting to just to dive 500 yards after him, but the wind is not right. You have to go take a chance and go and lose 30 minutes and go way around and get the wind right. Um, reading the topography of the terrain features and understanding thermals and the prevailing wind because the elk really like to have the wind in their favor almost at all times. And there's certain places where you're just not going to kill an elk. And a lot of times that's where they'll set up shop for the day. It could be um, a saddle where it's just going to swirl all day no matter what. Um, don't go in there. You just back off, stay on the fringes, and wait for them to get up and make a move. And so it's just knowing when to make a move, when to be patient, that kind of things. The Some of the dumb things I did was... I didn't know how to call elk very well, and I didn't practice. And I used a Primos bugle, and um, you can still kill elk with those. And then I graduated to a Power bugle, and you can still kill elk with those. And then I graduated to diaphragm or reeds, and really just everything changed right there. And I will say, if you are new to elk hunting or haven't thought about this, you should always have a reed in your mouth. A diaphragm in your mouth is important. Because you never know, you could break a stick hiking and a bull could bugle. It's happened many times. And if you don't have a call ready to go, you could be in trouble. Or you could call the bull in, put your reed away, get your release on your string, and the bull walks right through your lane and you can't stop him. You, what, are you going to whistle at him? That might work. Chances are it won't. So always having a reed in your mouth to stop an elk. I like elk to be completely stopped. And the last sound... A bull should ever hear is the sound of a diaphragm stopping them in your specific lane where you want to execute your shot. I think that's really important. As far as um, gear and all that stuff, I think that's an evolution where you just learn that you're packing too much stuff. I mean, I'm nowhere near Steve Speck's level of simplicity where his pack's so light, but man, I've really cut down on a lot of my gear that just is not needed. For example, rain pants are cool but it's not a must. I can get away with a rain jacket. And so you just kind of learn over the years like what things work, what things don't work, and lighten up your pack, get the right boots, get the right gear so you can be in there as long as possible to get the job done. And then hike like an elk. Elk don't go straight down, straight up, straight down, straight up. I've always, that's what I did in the early days, killing myself. And I hunted country with a lot of fingers, so you really have to like, elk like to stay on top of the finger. They like to side hill. They like to take slow, gradual trails down. And so, you know, that's just some of the stuff that comes to mind, the stuff that I made mistakes on. Not getting your bow pulled back in time uh, is, is important. You don't want to be the guy who has an elk staring at you, but you are not full drawn. That is, that's a heartbreaker. Or getting pulled back too, too early and an elk's just sitting there raking a tree and you're at full draw and he's going to keep raking that tree and by the time you let down he's already coming in towards you and he built that i mean elk have great peripheral vision they can pick off movement really quick as far as solo elk hunting which is kind of like my jam 
is not making an elk call and then waiting right where you made that last sound. Like if you got an interaction going on and a bull, it seems pretty interested, wherever you make your last sound, whether it be a challenge bugle, a spike bugle, an estrus cow call, a soft mew, whatever, a display call, you need to move because that elk's going to hone in on that last sound and know exactly where you are at. So you'll have to move up or around and make sure the wind's right. There's just a, there's a lot to it. And not to overwhelm people, but you're just going to learn through experience. Yeah, man. Those, some jam-packed with good tips in that for sure. Um, on the solo thing, if you, on that point of moving, how does that play out for you if you've already closed the distance a decent amount? Uh, do you just try and shut up at that point? Are you still pretty aggressive with your movement if you need to kind of call to get some attention? Um, yeah, so if I've got a bull that's going to come in or he's coming in, I generally shut up, move up, and don't make a sound and wait for them to get impatient. They're going to come in and see. But I make sure that I try to move up at least 50 to 80 yards from that last call, generally speaking. And I try to set off on one side or the other of the trail I think they're going to use or the general direction they're going to come in and get myself a lane. And I don't get behind a tree. I get in front of it and hold still. Um, but if a bull, let's say I do everything right and he's still just stuck there, I might, if I'm out of their sight, I might like rake a tree and not bugle. And that's worked really well for me over the years is just once I get in real tight and I can't get them to commit, I'll just start raking. Um, and that usually will get them to start raking, which then I can move in on them when they're distracted or they'll bugle at the raking or they'll charge in to see they'll get so worked up. So that's a good way to go. Um, most of the elk I call in are from bugling to be honest, you know, but I've many of many of them have not been just through cow calls. You just kind of have to check their temperature. I've had bulls run away from bugles. I've had bulls run away from cow calls. You just, you almost never know. And it's sometimes a guessing game, but if you can make the play that it has the best odds, that's usually what I go with. And so when you're in tight, I think your best odds is to either do nothing or rake a tree as long as you're out of sight. Um, but if you call in an area where an elk can kind of see where the sound should have come from and doesn't see what it's supposed to see, they're going to get nervous immediately. So you got to keep that in mind. You got to put yourself in a position where they can't see where that exact sound is. Um, you know, Corey Jacobson, those guys do the slingshot where Corey does most of the calling with his crew. And then when a bull's coming in, he shuts up and his team is 80 yards behind him and they start bugling. So the bull thinks that the bull moved back and then the bull will come in to where Corey's at. They call that the slingshot. That's pretty hip. That's hard to duplicate if you're hunting solo. So you have to almost do the opposite of the slingshot and call and move up, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Cool, man. One one last question I'd love to throw your way since since you mentioned it earlier before we wrap up. Um, you know, you're going to Wyoming. I'm just curious, uh, as someone with your experience, how do you look at, how do you approach, how do you prepare for hunting a new state or a new place you've never been? What are some of the takeaways for you? Okay. Yeah, so never been in this unit before. Um, 
I burned 10 points for it. I haven't hunted Wyoming in 10 years. So at least I've hunted in Wyoming before, but not in this mountain range. Um, I spend a fair amount of time on my desktop using Onyx Hunt or Onyx Maps. I have the premium or the elite, I'm sorry, membership so I can pull up any state anywhere and dig in on topo topographical maps as well as Google Earth Overlay. I will do some time on GoHunt.com. I'm a member. I'm not sponsored by them. I pay for that, and I'll go in and read some stats and get really kind of an idea of what's growing there, like you know, what kind of vegetation, uh, what's the terrain going to be like, and try to pull up some Google imagery, Google Earth, uh, so I can kind of get a lay of the land in my particular unit, I got to know where the wilderness boundary is because Wyoming's got that most ridiculous law that I live in Washington. I'm not a resident. I can't go into the wilderness without an outfitter or a resident of Wyoming. But so that's brutal. So you got to know that stuff. And um, that is crazy. Man, that's. I always tell people if I was really, really rich, I would start a lawsuit against that. I think that's ridiculous. I'm a taxpayer. Yeah, that's, I that's live in the United get, States. Like, I should be able to go wilderness. Where I want. Wilderness, by definition, is a federal regulation. Like, that's a federal protected status. So I don't get how the state can dictate the terms of a federal, federally designated piece of land. I don't understand that. And then if you're not hunting, of course you can go in there. Yeah. Right? So I don't get it. It's just, that's, man, that is one I scratch my head at. But So that's what I'm going to do is just kind of study maps and whatever and talk to whoever I know, which I have a few people that have hunted that unit before. That's going to be huge. That word of mouth, you got to find someone who's been there before and there's somebody out there and we can connect nowadays through social media or whatever and find those people that have been there before. So I do want to talk to a few people that have had boots on the ground there, which I already have. And uh, truth be told, I've already contacted one resident and he is going to go with me so, um, so I can hunt the wilderness. So that's kind of next level homework stuff I've had to do for this hunt. And then as far as at some point here, I'm going to do the logistics. I'm going to figure out a budget, what I got to pay for gas. Am I going to bring my camper? That's going to be even more gas. I mean, how much diesel am I looking at to get down there? Miles, um, the food. And um, what are you going to do if you kill an elk? Because I'm actually going with a buddy of mine. What if he shoots one first? What are we going to do with the first bull? How are we going to get it out and where are we going to keep it? Things like that. So... Um, there's a lot of logistics involved that you got to look at. And then I think you need to do a backpack dump and look at your gear and do an honest evaluation as to, you know, what worked in the past, what hasn't. I don't think you need to bring everything in the kitchen sink on a hunt, which sometimes people do pack too much stuff. So I think I just need to be honest with myself on what, what kind of hunting serves me best and have a plan A, B, C, D, and I'm a huge fan of Randy Newberg. I've never met him, but I th think he's done a good job of telling people, like, when you get somewhere, have plans A, B, C, and D, and go to A first. And if there's no elk there, then you know where not to go. And then you go to plan B, and you just work your plan. But if you don't have a plan, you're planning to fail. And I am not planning to fail on this hunt. I'm planning to be successful. And so, and that's the fun part about elk hunting is it's like you get to work on the hunt throughout the year it's not just it doesn't just start in september and i love that the 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 organized ocd side of me loves that so that's kind of how i'm looking at it 
Amen. Super helpful. That's awesome. Dave, before we uh, let you go, where do you want to point listeners? I know that you have so many resources, as you mentioned, from you know a site and podcasts and videos. What's the best way for them to get connected to all that if they're not already? Okay. Um, I put a lot of energy into YouTube slash Elkshape. Check that out. Um, just videos on everything from everything we've talked about. I do... Um, podcasts, not as frequently as you guys, but I, I try to podcast um, a couple times a month and talk to blue-collar elk hunters that maybe you've never heard of but have hunted a long time. In fact, like my last episode was with a guy who was 70 who shot his first bull with a bow in 1975. That's and then he awesome. went on to kill an elk every year for the next five years with like the very first compound that ever came out. And he's only archery elk hunted for 40-plus years. He's killed almost 40 elk. I he's forgot more than we'll know. So I'm always looking for like diamonds in the rough to interview, not like the same cast of guys that get on all the podcasts, but like I'm just looking for just a couple episodes a month. And then elkshape.com is where I just put out free, like I just use it as a training journal to hold myself accountable. So every week I just put up what I did. Like, and you may have to Google some of the jargon, but you'll figure out what I did and you might look at it and go, Hey, that's a good idea. I'll try that or whatever. And um, and then, you know, I've written a couple of programs, um, for training. If you're, you need ideas, one of them is 21 days to elk shape where it's just a three week program to catapult you towards elk shape was what I call it. And it's built for really any level. Um, and it's just going to test and measure your success in 21 days. And I think it's important, Mark, to shoot your bow. If you are an archery elk hunter to shoot your bow under duress, not at the range in the last 30 minutes when there's no wind and the light's awesome and the target's bright orange from the sun setting and there's one mile an hour wind. No, I think you need to shoot your bow with your backpack on, specifically your XO, with at a high heart rate. So maybe you do your 10 burpees and then shoot an arrow and do that five times till your quiver's empty and check out your group. Can you get your heart rate down and execute a good subconscious shot? I think that's really something that gets overlooked. And so I put that in the program, and I feel like that's a chink in a lot of guys' armor is not shooting under duress because I can't remember the time I've ever shot an elk with a low heart rate. To be honest with you, I'm usually pretty jacked. You know what I mean? And it's never a flat shot. And there's usually stuff in the way or, you know, a different angle that you really need to know where that arrow is going to exit things like that right. so yeah. i don't know man i there's always something to be working on right for sure so yeah cool man awesome well dan we appreciate it man thanks for the time thanks mark good to, good to talk to you man great to catch up